3: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to Darts and Letters. I'm Bren, a producer on the Darts team, and you're listening to our Politics of Video Games week of programming. A quick reminder right off the top we've only got a few weeks left of our summer programming, and then we're launching brand new episodes of the show right here starting from September 12th. If you're just tuning in for the first time, first of all, thank you for joining us. We're celebrating joining the New Books Network with a summer of previously published favorites with a different theme each week. We kicked off this week talking about the impact and controversy of mortal combat, and now we're going on a journey to save the whales. You might be wondering what whales have to do with gaming. We'll explain it all in the episode, but I'll give you a hint. In the gaming world, a whale is a high investing player for free to play games. It's easy to get seriously hooked and to spend a lot of money in the process. Game developers are all too aware of this, and some use sophisticated psychological tactics to hunt down their prey. In this episode, our host and editor, Gordon Kadic, takes us through how to save those whales. Take it away, Gordon.
4: From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Kadok. Darts and Letters is a podcast about arts and letters, but for people who might hack a dart, we're a left-wing show about ideas and sometimes about whales and minnows. <laughs> Call me Gordon. And my Captain Ahab is lead producer Jay Coburn. Against our better judgment, we are boarding our digital whaling ship, the Play Quad. Or was it the Nintend Quad? Whatever, doesn't matter. We're setting sail to harpoon our Moby prick. They're a sinister game developer who wants to keep us hooked to bad video games. Sorry, I just had to indulge in some terrible puns. The point is... We are talking about game design today. And in particular, we're talking about some rather sophisticated psychological ideas. Ideas that game developers use to hook us to their digital worlds. Sometimes those tools are used for good, but often they're used for bad. Let's start with the bad, free to play mobile games. Some of them are cool, but a lot of them are little more than glorified slot machines. And here's where the Moby Dick reference actually completely falls apart. Because the games aren't the whales, we're the whales. That's literally what game developers call a small minority of players. The players who really keep a game going. Just like degenerative gamblers, these whales, they spend inordinately. Some even throw their life savings away. You can see a lot of horror stories online. In fact, there's a whole subreddit about it. It's called r rstopgaming. And Jay, he pulled some sad
2: posts from the sub. Okay, here's the first one. I'm addicted. I spend the majority of my earnings on microtransactions. I have such a hard time stopping because I want to be the best and need the best. 30 minutes turns to hours, then I can't study. I need help. That's one. Here's another one. I have a spending problem with gaming and other things. I'm worried that I won't be able to provide for my fiance and two children if I keep this up. I spent my whole paycheck already, $400, on in-app purchases. I got paid yesterday and I already spent it all. Does anyone have any tips or ways to help me? And here's a third one. As soon as I quit video games again, everything went back to normal and I'm pretty happy. Thing is, gaming is all I want to do right now. Why is this shit so fucking hard? I wish I could just balance life and gaming because no other hobby captivates me this much. Fuck, I just want to lock myself in my room and game forever. But I also don't want to start a cycle of hating myself again.
4: China is trying to legislate their way out of these problems. They've been introducing a raft of new restrictions on the gaming sector. Now, people under 18 can only play three hours a week. Plus, they sent out this crazy memo to game developers. It said that games must represent, quote, a correct set of values. And it also warned that titles that had queer romance or, quote, effeminate males are just not likely to be approved by China's censors. That's, of course, outrageous, but the censorship is not really that surprising. What is, is the restrictions on playtime. It's really heavy-handed, and it's just not likely to work. Because nearby, in South Korea, they had the same kind of game addiction problems, and they tried and failed with similar kind of heavy-handed restrictions. Sheik Kim saw it firsthand, and our managing producer, Mark Apollonio, talked to him this week. Full name is Hwan Sheik
0: Kim. Uh, I'm from South Korea, I'm 33 years old now. As online games were getting really popular in Korea, a lot of people started playing non-stop computer games, and people were literally dying. I remember the first one I saw on the news was when I was in middle school, right around where the games like Diablo 2 came out, and actually that was the first game I heard somebody actually died from non-stop playing video game, eating instant food all day long. I was a hardcore gamer. Uh, I played probably average of 13 hours per day through middle school to high school. What I would do is I would buy a bunch of cup noodles and then I start uh, marathon gaming. I, I mostly played online games, so there's no end of the story. So I would sometimes challenge myself to see how long I can play without sleeping. That was actually a popular challenge back then with friends. My record was three days in a row with three hours of sleep. So the first day I didn't sleep at all, second day I slept two hours, and the third day I slept one hour.
4: But then the South Korean government and the developers themselves started to crack down. They instituted a bunch of super restrictive rules.
0: The first rule I was facing to break was the curfew system. So the government was doing curfew at 10 p.m., especially like if you're at a PC room, uh, you get kicked out. Otherwise, they're going to have to uh, pay a big fine. Honestly, though,
4: how are you going to stop Sheik from playing his games? And
0: these rules, they're pretty easy to break. The curfew rule, I bent it by just buying a PC on my own. And then also I started having friends in my classroom that has PC, so we would do like a sleepover. So we would completely eliminate the uh, PC bank, PC room type of a situation.
4: Then he ran into another problem. They created a rule that limited what minors could and couldn't do in the games. But Sheik found an easy way around that. Just convince the game that you're not a minor.
0: So I just eventually used my mom's social security number and actually used her phone to pay the cash items, too. Because there's multiple pay uh, methods and minor, if you're a minor, there's limited ways to pay things.
4: People like Sheik are always going to find a way around these rules. It happened in South Korea and eventually it's going to happen in China, too. You just aren't gonna legislate your way out of these problems. And honestly, you shouldn't even try. We know that prohibition doesn't work in other domains. It's not gonna work in gaming. But what we can do is at least take a step back and take a critical look at the game designers themselves. We can call out bad game design. We can advocate for values-based game design, and we can celebrate the developers who really are doing progressive things with game mechanics. That's exactly what we're doing today on Darts and Letters. So jump aboard our ship, but this one, it's out to save the whales. Mary Flanagan is a game designer, author, artist, and educator. She's written a lot on critical game design, and she wants game developers to think hard about the values that are embedded in their game mechanics.
5: Everything we make as humans we bring our values to that thing we make. And we kind of tend to forget that when we're immersed in narratives and all of these things, but actually games are art forms of doing.
4: Can a game mechanic actually help people with their mental health issues rather than make them worse? Maru Niho, Niho is an independent Maori game developer, and she developed a game that treated depression in Maori kids. It's now being used in Canada for Inuit populations.
3: There was one side where it's like, okay, this is CPT and this is how it works. Like literally through the game we have seven levels which represent seven modes of therapy. The other side was now how do we wrap the multi world inside this game. But
4: first, we look at the psychological tricks in free-to-play gaming from a person who employed the tricks firsthand. Torolf Jörnström founded a Finnish game development company called Tribe Flame. But if you look him up on Google, that's not the first thing you see. The first thing you see is a talk. A talk he did at a game developer conference in 2016. It's kind of like a TED Talk thing, but it is very masks off.
6: Hello. I'm here to talk about monetization. It's Let's Go Whaling. It is about a... uh a summary of a huge bunch of uh, behavioral psychology. Some of you will probably uh, be slightly shocked by all the tricks I have listed here, but I'll leave the morality of it out of the talk. We can discuss it uh, if we have time later. So let's In the video, right in.
4: Torolf rattles off a bunch of
6: psychological
4: ideas and concepts. These are things that can make your game more addictive, like constructing habit loops, using slot machine mechanics, creating Skinner boxes, short-circuiting the slow-thinking part of your brain and clicking into the fast-thinking part, playing on people's loss aversion by threatening to take their shit, creating artificial scarcity, anchoring people to high prices and then giving them a sale. It was basic supermarket and used car salesman stuff, but presented in a pretty systematized way. As you might expect, went semi-viral. All over the internet, gamers were pouncing. ...like what he's saying, these are the different ways that you use to basically fucking scam people out of their money. Now, number three is the pay to win. This is Twitch streamer and World of Warcraft player, Gold. I mean, these videos, right, it's very important to watch them. So it's like, so you know how you're getting fucked. YouTube comments on this video are pretty funny too. Quote, how to destroy the video game industry through greed and immorality in 20 minutes or less. Here's another. This is a fascinating, dark lesson on manipulating and anti-consumer practices. Save this video for historical reasons and for consumer education. And there's this other one I like that just quoted Machiavelli. It said, learn the way to hell in order to flee from it. Well, today we're not running from it. We are running right at it, right to the man himself. Oral Is there like a canonical sort of like Bible on like how to monetize games? Like, is this the kind of thing that one can approach within the game industry itself? Or did you have to really sort of like pull from like how used car salesmen function and how, you know, all these other sort of domains, sort of gambling, for instance?
6: Quite frankly, it seems uh, that talk that you're referring to is almost the, the closest thing you yeah. get. Uh, <laughs> people will openly describe most other aspects, but for fear of pissing people off, the aspect of how to talk people into spending money is something that the big companies or, or any successful company is really optimizing that, but pretty quietly. That's the reason I thought that, hey, we're running our own company. We don't have any bosses telling us what we can and cannot say. So let's give a very blunt description of how this works.
4: <laughs> just for context, I mean, for people who don't know the concept of a whale and like trying to target whales and minnows, is that what it could you just explain exactly
6: what, what that means in mobile game parlance? Early on in mobile games, they used the vocabulary that they have borrowed from the gambling industry from Las Vegas in Las Vegas apparently they refer to a heavy spender as a whale so the heavy spenders whales medium spenders minnows and most of the market is non spenders in any game even the most successful ones you will have a 90 plus percent will never spend anything often it's like 98 percent will never spend anything and then you have that few percent that are spenders and the tiny market part of those are the heavy spenders and um, even before I gave that talk this vocabulary was actually going out, out of fashion it's like we shouldn't refer to our customers as whales, but rather super fans, I think was the the word coming into use instead. Right,
4: right. (laughs) I mean, I appreciate the honesty of it, the kind of masks off honesty. Are there a, a couple of concepts or techniques that stand out to you as particularly persuasive and worthy of note? Like which ones do you think are the most sort of important?
6: The games that were on the top, what most of them always had in common was that It is possible to spend a lot. The in-game economy, if that's capped like it was for the games we made, that once you have spent like $50, there's nothing more to spend on. That will not get get you to one of these uh, top spots where the game is making a lot of money. There needs to be, it needs to be possible to spend. The other thing uh, was that deep social structure so that if we are a team and we're helping each other, that will also drive a larger spend. And the third one was keeping the game fresh with new content. That there, there are this week's tournament or, or an event or a raid, if you have that kind of game. These things like feeding the game with new, new, new content like this. These three were, were the ones that really were drivers of the big revenue games.
4: How do you balance the right level of, how do I put this? Like, you want to give people inducement so they can achieve better in the game, but you don't want to alienate players and make them think this is just pay to win, right? That like skill doesn't matter at all. So how do you balance that level of like selling someone kind of a power up but not giving the goods away completely? Pay
6: to win will will turn people off, at least some people. But The notion that a game is inherently a skill-based thing, that's just a subset of games, honestly. I mean, if you've ever played Farmville, it was very, very popular back then. I can't see any skill in Farmville. So the way we started thinking about it, it's you have like a ladder of achievement. You unlock steps on this ladder by playing, playing, It might be some sort of collections or something or levels or whatever you have, this ladder, by playing, by luck, by uh, being good, by putting in time or by putting in money. And that means that if I'm playing with my son, he'll have more time than I do. He can put in more time to to level up on that ladder. But I can keep up with my son by paying to have have a, a... a shortcut to keep up with the more time he put in to usually in the free-to-play games, you are collecting something. As I said there, a pure skill-based game, chess, I don't have any way to make chess into a free-to-play game. So, and I, I thought it's kind of funny that a lot of people who took issue with my explanation, one of the things they took most issue with was when I said that a pure skill game is bad at monetizing. I still consider this is just a statement of fact. (laughs) If you build a game that is purely skill-based, you will not make a lot of money on it if you make it free to play.
4: Right, yeah, it's make sure games aren't too skill-based. I think what you said, yeah. I sort of take your point that there are games that are of different varieties and some are pure skill-based and others aren't, but put aside the question of skill. I mean, the way that you put it, sort of the ladder of progress or achievement, I think gamers and people in general have a kind of inherent sense of justice here. And no matter what that ladder is, if it's grinding, then grind. If it's skill, then be the most skilled. If it's creativity or collection or whatever, but the idea that you can just kind of like short circuit that and just like,
6: okay, I'm going to take a shortcut. I believe this is a, a different mindset. I, I know exactly where, where you're coming from. I came from the same mindset when coming into this, because let me guess. You're a PC or console gamer? Uh, I'm a console gamer, yes. Yeah. How much do you play on mobile? Never. You, You see, mobile gamers are the biggest segment. Mobile gamers, there's two and a half billion mobile gamers. Even if we look at revenue, mobile games as a business is a way larger market than all of these others. And what you're describing is really a console gamer's view on mobile games. But the guys who are playing Clash Royale are quite fine with either grinding or buying to get that next card that they want. So there's a huge amount of people who are used to this model and kind of prefer this model. It has its pluses and its minuses. The sad thing, I think, is that currently at least the premium game model where you pay upfront for something that doesn't really exist on mobile or isn't really viable. That's the sad thing, I think. But I wouldn't want to get rid of the the free to play model either. It does align the gaming company and the player in the way that only the players who keep on playing will eventually maybe pay. These games are really offering like unlimited try before you buy. While a premium game will hype up what they they offer, get the money from you up front, and then if you actually end up playing or not, that's not really their problem.
4: The one thing that sort of surprised me the way you talk about it, like people decide or prefer the mobile way or they're accustomed to the mobile way versus the console way. First of all, I don't think that's a fair dichotomy because a lot of the mechanics, I was introduced to these mechanics through Final Fantasy XI, World of Warcraft. So it's not one or the other. It's both. It's everywhere, these mechanics. It's just that they're more pronounced in mobile games. But the idea that people choose them, nothing in your video is about choice. If anything, it's about choice architecture. It's not about agency. It's not about what the player wants. It's how we craft the social circumstances and social psychology so that they choose what I want. That's what the video is about. I'm unabashedly so. I don't yeah. think that's a controversial thing to say. So why do no, you no, say no, no. that the, the mobile player wants this kind of, like if they could take the pay the $10 and have a great game, that's just not on offer because of the material like realities that we've been talking about. So in what way have they
6: chosen? There are still games that you pay up front. There are still premium games on the App Store. The problem is that hardly no consumers are paying for those. And this is not the fault of Apple and Google. I mean, at the point when the premium games were bringing in like 1% of the revenue for Apple, the games that Apple were featuring were still like 50% the premium games. Mm-hmm. And I had at game conferences, long discussions with Apple, Apple's representatives of how do we save or how do we reintroduce the premium game model? But however, very few consumers are actually doing that, which, which I think finds sad. As I said, I would like there to be a market or larger market for the traditional where you pay upfront. Mm. But consumers seem to way, way, way at the moment, prefer games that they can download for free. And if you are downloading a game for free, that means that the game company is going to, frankly, program a sales guy into the game. That's what's going to happen. I mean, they are businesses. Otherwise, they do go, go bankrupt.
4: How do you feel about the morality of these? What do you really feel in your heart of hearts?
6: I do believe that that you can abuse this. I mean, you, you can go way overboard with it. There was one mechanic really pushing it in uh, Japan called gacha. It was like a loot box in a loot box. That's pushing it over the limit of, of what I would consider fraud and they legislated against it and I think that's a very, very good thing. That said, I believe that Games should work the same as that sales guy on the phone or the brick-and-mortar store or, or an airline. The same rule should apply to all. You did an, an episode about the moral panic. Yeah. Once you start treating the free-to-play games as something new and want to put way harder restrictions on this than the other economies, I believe you're, you're getting close to that. I mean, if you're fine with, uh, I believe when I described the gachas, the loot boxes, I said that this is really the same mechanic as in uh, Magic the Gathering. Personally, I cannot see if we allow Clash Royale to use the mechanic they're using. We also allow Magic the Gathering to use the mechanic. Either you forbid them both or you allow them both because it's the same mechanic. No, I
4: mean, I understand what you're saying completely. I, I, it doesn't seem to me like it's the kind of thing that you can sort of fully legislate because it's so sort of contextual really, it's kind of an ethical question because on, on a certain level, you're going to use techniques like this, like any good art will use certain kind of emotional manipulation to capture an audience. So it's not as simple as saying, okay, that is okay. And this isn't, it's more like, what is the ethic and the value of the game? to what end are these techniques being used for? And I think even a kind of uh, scummy used car salesman who like pushes a car and uses like um, a false sense of scarcity to get grandma to spend a little little more than, than she should, at least in some cases we can say, hey, she got a good car hopefully. But I think <laughs> a, a lot of the difference is some of these games, they're very simple slot machines. They're basically like they're all interchangeable. There's like a lot of people can look at them and say, There's no value here except for basically the psychological mechanisms that are being juiced up, like this is
6: a dopamine rush. I'm a player in mobile games myself. I'm a spender in mobile games myself. And the kind of games you describe, they'll flop. I mean, it's incredibly difficult even when you build a mobile game that you put no monetization into it at all, which is usually where, where you start when you build a mobile game. To just get someone to play something for free, even for two days, is incredibly difficult. It's not like you can just build a simple thing, simple slot machine, and you learn money by putting this stuff in. The mobile games, I'd think of them as TV series, as soap operas, compared to the feature films of console games and PC games. They are different. And there is a certain sense of um, I'm a player of console games. I'm a a connoisseur of good movies. I don't watch soap operas. There's a certain snobbishness from the players of console games. (laughs) I hope I'm not being offensive here, but really that is the case, I would say. Looking down on mobile games, which are the soap operas,
4: There may be some of that, but I don't think that's entirely fair. You know, take it back to the sort of like moral panic as a concept. Like the moral panic as a concept is about essentially targeting a relatively powerless group of people and trying to enforce conformity and express a kind of anxiety about your own sort of status quo. I mean, that's that's where it comes from. It's about social deviance, essentially. So when people talk about mobile games, I think the vitriol is not necessarily, uh, there's probably a certain amount of it, like, oh, you're a novice, you don't really know games. I think that's fair. What I see most of all is vitriol against the game developers and the techniques. The vitriol was against you. It wasn't against people who play mobile games. It was, this is manipulative and look at how much money they're making. So to call it a moral panic is kind of crazy. It's like saying there's a moral panic about billionaires. Well, I guess so, but like billionaires are not like a vulnerable group. They're the dominant class. And that's the case here in gaming clearly more and more.
6: Uh, Yeah. But, but this, the moral panic that you were describing your, your, um, episode There was also the gaming companies were being accused of using gore and uh, blood and things to appeal to the weak gamers. And this is the the same kind of thing here. It's outsiders who are pointing fingers. If there are people who are players of those things saying, I think I was being manipulated into this, that is a problem. And and I, I do believe that that problem does exist, but the console gamers looking into mobile games and not playing the whole, not part of the the whole thing, that that strikes me as odd. It's a bit the same thing as people who weren't playing games at all, pointing at, at games back a generation ago, saying those things are bad.
4: You're listening to Darts and Letters, a show about the politics of academia, ideas, and intellectual life. We're proud to be a new member of the New Books Network. And all this summer, we're playing some highlights from our archives. But we're coming back in September. And if you like what you hear now, you'll want to hear that. So why don't you subscribe to our podcast? You can find it by searching Darts and Letters wherever you find your podcasts or going to dartsandletters.ca. I don't know why you hinge so much of it on this console question because it's not a fair dichotomy. Like most of the responses I saw, for it was an example, there's a guy who literally while he was watching your video, he would pause it and then he would show you the same mechanic on WoW. So to say that like they're these neophytes, they have no idea what's going on in mobile games. It's just a different culture. Like they have some expertise in this
6: domain. Yeah, I mean, uh, big games like World of Warcraft, That's why I did this analysis. And that's why I'm being blunt about it. The thing is that I think a lot of game developers were just blindly copying what one of the big guys were doing. And I don't think that's a good thing to do. If you blindly copy, you're not taking any like responsibility and, and clear conscious decision. I am fine with trying this way of selling something to my players. And I believe... As game developers, we would have the obligation to understand how does this work, which are the levers I am trying to pull to talk someone into spending money on my game. And that's why I was doing a very blunt explanation of this is how it works. I take your point that there's a lot of work
4: that goes into developing these mobile games and making them persuasive, but is that the kind of work versus having emotionally affecting and intellectually stimulating pieces of art that affect you not just on a sort of behavioralist level, but at a sort of cognitive level. That's my fundamental concern with your approach and the approach of these games generally. They don't approach people at a rational level, and they don't fulfill the sort of promise of games as an affecting art form.
6: I do believe that you have the actual game, and then you have the monetization layer. And the actual game, I have a huge respect for. I am keep on bringing up Clash Royale because I think it's so elegant, very well-made game. I believe that is a novel game. I haven't seen the mechanic anywhere before playing that. It is very, very elegant. They are giving the way, game away for free. You get to play it for however long you want for free, but they do have a sales guy programmed into it. Personally, I, I was fine with that. You might uh, make an, a different choice. You, you might say that I don't like this game or I like this game, but I do not like the way that they are trying to talk me into spending money then. And then either you keep playing it for free or you decide to stop playing that game. But look into that game. I would absolutely challenge you to say that it's a bad game. Just as one example out of a million examples.
4: That was Torolf Jernström, founder of the game studio Tribe Flame. If you want to learn more about the dark arts of game monetization, check out Torolf's talk. It's called Let's Go Whaling, and you can find it on our show notes. Mary Flanagan is a radical game developer, artist, and theorist. And particularly, she's a theorist of the role of values in game design and game mechanics. Now, when she writes about values, it's not just the politics of the game. It's not just the representational questions. Although it is that, it's also about the level of mechanics. What values are actually embedded into the very architecture of the game? That's stuff that Torolf was talking about. Mary's work really pushes game developers to think about those deep, fundamental, structural questions within the games they create.
5: Everything we make as humans we bring our values to that thing we make, and we, we leave them in the item. And we kind of tend to forget that when we're immersed in narratives and all of these things, but actually games are art forms of doing. And so because of that, we're equipping players to do things. And that all has repercussions about what we're actually meaning to uh, communicate in a game. And so look at chess. There are values in chess. There are two sides, for example. So competition, two sides. They're equally balanced. So there's this idea of a game has equality or the kind of fairness built into it. Each side has an equal chance. There's even class built into chess because you have pawns and they're worth, they're more expendable. They have less power than the Royals. And you also have other values such as, you know, war is a way to solve problems. (laughs) So all of those things are built in, they're baked into that framework of a game. And then it's like, how do those values relate to the context that game is played in? How, did that, how does that relate to the players and what they bring to the table? It's, it's a complex web.
4: So I'm curious about maybe some popular games and get your take on what sort of the implicit or explicit values are. I mean, one of them, one of the most popular ones that you write about is The Sims. So maybe I, I thought I would kind of start there. What made you look at The Sims and, and what are the values there?
5: I really enjoyed The Sims because while it was a tongue-in-cheek Game that kind of looked at happy suburban Americana, and you can tell it's very much based on that kind of model of you know the streets are wide, the houses have yards, there's pools and everything. I also really found it quite interesting the ways in which I saw players play the game, and in part this is because I visited Maxis when they were making one of the Sims and I met the designers, um, talked to Will and other designers working on the game. And it was really interesting because they wanted to break the fourth wall occasionally, you know, like when the Sims are doing something bad, and they get really angry and they, they kind of turn to you. They, want, they broke the fourth wall, they added humor, and they allowed for players to take this suburban fantasy in their own direction. And it was really quite interesting the way there's a whole group of players who would just abuse their Sims trap them in the swimming pool, start the house on fire. You know, they. <laughs> it was just a whole group of people doing that. So what does it mean to create this thing where, you know, you go and you get a job and you work for the goods in the house and you can you downsize in The Sims and still keep your characters happy? If not, is it just this engine of consumption or is there a critique in it, right? Can we read a critique mm. and a place for reflection? It's like, wow, I, I have too much stuff and I keep buying this stuff for this character and they're never happy And they, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, so trying to, the, the, the exact relationship between how the characters are kept happy and what it means in our everyday lives is a space for reflection, I think. So, so I'm, mm-hmm. I, I have had a good set of fascinations with, with, you know, looking at the history of the suburban development around, around the world. And how class operated, you know, when, when cities were too congested, you know, wealthy families moved out, created these subdivisions, and then created these like class boundaries and stuff. So, so yeah. then we're automatically putting ourselves in one class and not the other. We don't have Sims High Rise as like the first game coming out. It's very much a different kind of um, urban fantasy.
4: Part of the reason why I was curious to talk to you was about the game designer and, you know, part of your your book looks at sort of shifting their process and making them attentive to values and not just the kind of engineering of it. And part of what we want to look at is the world of free-to-play, the whole kind of infrastructure of games that have very predictable and exploitative psychological dynamics that don't seem to build much sort of beyond that. What do you think about those types of games and what how would you you talk about them in in sort of in the domain of values?
5: I would say that if you were looking for, in some ways, the most manipulative game you could find, Candy Crush does come to mind as a game that has it all, right? (laughs) Just like a slot machine draws you to it by its kind of variable ratio reward structure where you don't always win, but sometimes you're close enough to win and then you win a little bit, but then you don't win and you don't win that... That whole structure of how often you win and, you know, the kind of feeding of just, oh, oh, there's almost some promise. There's some promise. There's almost just keep going, just one more time, just one more time. That whole process, which, of course, places like Las Vegas (laughs) and casino designers have mastered quite well, has been brought into game design in a very big way. And that certainly wasn't the case in some kinds of games. But, you know, even go back to arcades you had this model where you would run out of your quarter and then you would have to, you know, you would want to see if you could get to the next level, want to see if you could get to the next level, but now it's far more sophisticated. And um, the variable racial reward structure is tied deeply into the way we think as creatures Um, look at the, you know, Pavlovian dog. (laughs) (laughs) We Hmm. respond as creatures to certain kinds of stimulus and um, can be quote trained. So Candy Crush, shiny objects, they even drip, you know, so there's like a saliva, like there's almost like a citrusy, like kind of visceral thing going on. And then there's these explosions and, you know, you feel like you've done so much and then there's this cause and effect through the chaining and, oh, I got that and I got that and I got that. And I I call those fist pump moments where you're like, yes, I got that. That structure it's like a beautiful machine and it's pleasurable it's just like a dopamine rush that just keeps going and that, and when you're locked out and you have to wait some people can put the the game down and some people will pay because they are on their groove and though catching people when they're at that moment where they're like i don't want to stop is how a lot of a lot of games are designed right now and you know that's an ethical question i, I would tell you right now that there are a bunch of indie game designers who would never do that <laughs> Who would never try to hook someone just to raise revenue? I mean, that's a kind of ethical question. You want to offer something awesome while you're raising revenue. And so there are, game designers have you know, different philosophies on that, depending on what they're required to do in their jobs <laughs> and what they would prefer to do as artists. There's a line. And I have f- friends who quit their jobs because they did not want to go down a line they felt was crossed.
4: That's really interesting is that, like, the game developers are reckoning with the kind of psychological power they have. I mean, some of the stories of addiction and, and the, the compulsiveness, they surprise me. I never I never would have thought games kind of would get to that level. Do you think it surprised, in a sense, the industry? Or is this kind of like a, a very careful, calculated, and scholarly approach to building... The most um kind of uh, addictive systems
5: uh it's definitely intentional i mean it's a revenue model and games get they do not get cheaper to make <laughs> so <laughs> so um it's a revenue model and it's been the same way even in the 1990s everybody talked about okay trt total running time total hours of gameplay and you would advertise it on mm-hmm. the box and people still talk about games that way and for like you know your big AAA kind of oh it's eighty hours of gameplay and one hundred and twenty hours awesome it's I, I you know it's worth more it's worth more it's I'll pay forty I'll pay forty I'll pay fifty I'll pay sixty dollars for that because it's more I'm getting more for my money so now we have a little bit of different model where it's like oh I get all of this and I only have to pay $199. Oh, yeah it's just one ninety nine but there's a <laughs> lot of one ninety nines
4: <laughs> yeah no kidding so I'm curious like when game developers have conversations about like the values of their game mechanics, especially in the domain of like when we're starting to get into some more exploitative mechanics, is there like a push for a certain kind of like ethical code or like something that's, I mean, not totally formalized, but at least like a set of principles or something, is there a kind of like a movement that says game sh- mechanics should look like this and not like this? Like where are we at in that kind of conversation? Or is it just just kind of a studio by studio basis and there are, you're Free to play predators and they're your progressive indie makers. Like, is it
5: yeah? I think different? it's there's no one large scale, like, uh, reckoning uh, that's going across uh, all different communities and pockets of the game industry. But I would say that it's happening in schools, and because now game design and game creation is showing up in majors and minors across the United States, that's where you get the interesting discussions happening among students who. Are reading and engaging with ideas before they enter the industry so that when they enter the industry, they're coming with a lot uh, a lot more thoughtfulness and a lot more attention to things that might have been taken for granted.
4: I'm curious about the process. I mean, you write about having game designers really th- rethink their process a little bit. What kind of um, changes ought they make to sort of really seriously consider the values of their, their programs?
5: one is to just state the values of the game explicitly and put mm-hmm. them as criteria for your final product things change when you're creating any kind of game any kind of creative work but a game in particular playtesting can take you down this way or this way and you might change make significant changes it's easy to have that core value that you thought was the beginning of the game kind of get lost and i've seen that a lot like you it's like ah oh, this the whole point of this is about we emphasize uh, inclusion, oh, but then there's this battle scene, or then we have this other thing. Oh, well, I don't know, but if we have these two groups do this, blah, 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 blah. And by the time you get back to where you're at, you may have something fun, but did you really satisfy that initial intent? It's almost like a dual bottom line. As a developer, you have to try to figure out at what point did you go down something so far that you actually lost sight of that initial Values, or just to look at your game anew and say, wow, what values did emerge now that weren't necessarily intended?
4: Yeah, I mean, this sort of unintended consequence is really fascinating. I'm curious about the game spent. <laughs> if I understand it correctly, it was kind of designed to raise awareness about poverty and, and spending what little resources you have. But how was it that the mechanics of it sort of, in a way, belied its values or, or, or sent a different kind of message than was perhaps intended?
5: I don't want to just diss on this game, because it really did have very good um, intention. You know, Spent was a game that was developed around 2011, 2012, so it's it's relatively old now. But it was a web-based game to raise awareness about poverty and how close so many people in the United States are living to poverty. So one starts the game, and one uh, loses one's job and has about $1,000 in the bank and has to survive. And you have to make choices. Do you fix your car? Do you take your child who's ill to the doctor? Do you, there are real choices that real Americans have to make. So it's a serious game. And it was just happened to be one of the games that a Yale researcher, a graduate student at Yale studied because it's so few games are studied. But in this particular study, it did tend to make people have more sympathy for those who are homeless, but at the same time or, or on the poverty line, At the same time, the data suggested that players also assigned personal responsibility to the situation that the player found themselves in. So because games are about choices and you have choices, well, maybe you just made the wrong choices and you ended up poor, (laughs) right? So in that way, it would deny a sense of systemic inequity. A player might think, oh, you know, poverty is personally controllable the game is personally controllable. So that's something you might not catch if you just hear what someone is saying about a game as they play it. Oh wow, oh no, I I didn't wanna lose our money. So really understanding how people think after playing a game, two weeks after playing a game, two months after playing a game, longitudinal studies are very difficult to find also Mm. in the game space. So there are many challenges about getting actual data on games, and um, just because you tell a story about something that's very important and real doesn't mean that people react in the same way that you think.
4: That's a really um, scary thought. I would think for a lot of progressive game makers that they don't really know ultimately kind of what what the effects are. I guess that kind of leads me to one of my questions: like, what ultimately, when we're making games for like social change or radical critique, like what's the end goal here
5: in one point of view games are just a site for exploring new worlds right so you could have games as possible futures i like to think of games as speculative spaces where you could imagine new kinds Mm -hmm. of realities and that's very exciting to think about oh let's make this utopian version of this world. And, and we're like, well, how is it utopian? And where does it break? And let me find a way to break right. it. And <laughs> so so it <laughs> provides it. Games can provide spaces for those that kind of action, which uh, stories don't necessarily do that, right? Stories aren't spaces where you go and try to break them <laughs> or exploit mm-hmm. them or, you know, find the, the the hidden strategy that no one else is finding, um, you know? So, so they're very different kinds of systems. but. I think, ultimately, for me, I'm trying to make games that take responsibility for their meaning and yet are still fundamentally games, which mean that, that they're engaging, they're moving, they're attractive, they're compelling. You know, Fun is one of those weird words. We can say we're having fun and it's really terrifying what we're actually doing. <laughs> we could say we're having fun and we're like kind of sad about this character's long walk home after something happened. The one thing that games can't be, of course, is didactic, because if I suddenly say, well, I don't want you to litter, and you're going to play this game, and it tells you not to litter, right? (laughs) This this is not helpful. (laughs) No one wants this game. (laughs) Games are supposed to be spaces of freedom, right? I don't want to be told what to think and how to live my life, right? So you can't have, that's called psychological reactance, right? So how do you design something that's trying to have messaging, but kind of avoid psychological reactance, you know, and we've all seen it. I mean, we're seeing it on college campuses, for example, when it's like, instead of interesting signage, there's like, wear a mask, you must wear a mask, wear a mask now, you know, it's like, I've seen people like take their mask off right in front of the sign, cause it's like, oh yeah, you know, psychological reactance, this is a human thing. <laughs>
4: That was Mary Flanagan. If you want to learn more about radical game design, check out her work. She's got a book called Values at Play in Digital Games and another called Critical Play, Radical Game Design. My head has been so much in this world of manipulative game design. But I don't want to leave you with a false impression. I don't want you to think that all games just usurp people's agency and exploit their vulnerabilities. Of course, a lot of them do, but some of them do just the opposite. Some of them make you healthier. Some of them support your agency. At least the games by Maro Nihunihu do that. She's a Maori game developer in New Zealand, and her studio, Matia, makes games for Maori people. These are games that educate, and one of them is literally a mental health treatment. It's called Sparks. This was a fantasy game version of cognitive behavioral therapy. Maru designed it with academics and with Maori elders, and it was made for Maori youth with depression. I called up Maru to hear the story of the game, how it integrated psychology and indigenous culture, and how games in general can make us better understand mental health and wellness.
3: I will have to say it was a little bit challenging to put in aspects of our culture into the Sparks game because we were working with a therapy Mm -hmm. that is a face-to-face therapy. And we were computerizing that. We were putting it into a gaming platform. So there was one side where it's like, okay, this is CBT and this is how it works. Like literally through the game, we have seven levels which represent seven uh, modes of therapy. The other side was now how do we wrap te ao Māori, which is the Māori world, inside this game? You know, how do we wrap it around the therapy and the story. So there are actually three big parts. There's the therapy, the story, and the cultural elements. So the easiest way for us to do that was by including graphical elements that are known in our culture. So like waka, that represents journeying forward. Um, We used a giant kauri tree, which is this very ancient tree that grows in New Zealand and which represents growth so a lot of the imagery that we used represented you growing or learning so that was quite important to make it fit into the therapy and into the story we also made our characters look mouldy as well so our guide who was the the man that you meet at the start he has feathers in his hair which represents you know a person of high status So it was about taking aspects, important aspects of our culture that were really relevant to the story and to the therapy.
4: Must be an interesting kind of dynamic to work on a game where you're collaborating with therapists and scholars, not the kind of typical game design process. How was that?
3: That made things longer. (laughs) Because we had a lot of meetings that we needed to attend. So it was either meetings with psychologists or it was meetings with our Maori komatua. So komatua is an elder and he would advise us on some of the things that we wanted to do or to put into the game. He would say ka pai, which means, yes, that's good to go. Or he would say, "Um, think about this and sort of change it up a wee bit.
4: And what were the results? Because it was evaluated. There's like many a paper that has been written on this game and this method.
3: Well, the results were great. The game was reviewed. It went through clinical trial and the results in a nutshell were that Sparks is just as effective as treatment as usual. So it was a great result.
4: I'm curious about in general how mental health has factored into gaming in general because it to me it seems like a fruitful place to like inhabit the world of someone with a mental health issue to understand what it's like and to create things that approximate what it might be like to have this issue or that issue. Is that something that gaming has like portrayed or done kind of interesting things with?
3: There is one game in particular that wasn't designed like how sparks was meaning it wasn't like to go through clinical trials and you know to go as deep as what sparks does in that sense it's a commercial game but it does touch on mental health and it's sort of a game that i can see sparks progressing into one day that game is called hellblade or sunua's sacrifice up, quick, the main character hears voices that song again. What is it?
2: What is it? Is it? is it? Tell her.
3: Yes. The source of the darkness. It's coming. This is your moment. There's voices in her head that are telling her, don't do it. And there's other, another voice on the side that's saying, do it. And so you, as the player, are experiencing what she's experiencing. What are
1: you doing? You're showing weakness. You're not a warrior, you're a disgrace.
3: It's really cleverly made because it does touch on mental health, but it's designed in a way where where you're learning without being taught. You're sort of just going through the motions in the game and you're building an understanding of potentially what it's like for people that do suffer with this condition and how confusing and upsetting that could be
4: i was looking at the backstory that i found it fascinating they did have like doctors that they were consulting and that sort of thing and really interesting to me like when i heard about that game i was like oh if i had you know psychosis or something like that i might be afraid of that being triggering or or um or really harmful but you know you go on youtube and there's A few of these videos sort of confessional videos of people with mental health issues saying this like totally speaks to my experience and it was like the most kind of true representation of my psychosis things like that and i thought that was um kind of amazing to see like gamers talk about it to their sometimes really large audiences and things that they had never talked about so that was really cool
3: yeah no that was cool i i did read through those comments and the feedback. From people who do suffer from psychosis and it was amazing and that's why i thought you know if sparks was to progress into the commercial world this would be a good game to look at you know in terms of the the way it was um, designed and developed
4: i'm curious if that's where this kind of storytelling is going like what are you seeing in terms of using mental health as uh as a kind of storytelling device? Are there other game devs who are doing this or should they be doing this? Yeah, like what what are you seeing?
3: I think that the gaming platform should be used for everything, (laughs) (laughs) to teach everything because of its interactive nature, you know, of what you have to do as a player. The choices, the consequences, the different outcomes based on those consequences. There's a a ton of resources and games out there that are explicit in your face educational games but i think the way games will move forward or the learning will move forward is not so much in your face education like you don't have to replicate a classroom in a gaming world you just use the gaming mechanics you know the reward systems of a game to help with those educational outcomes that you want to achieve would have been perfect for someone like me who was not really engaged in traditional education at school i was just one of those kids that really preferred hands-on learning want to make stuff i want to break stuff and i want to fix it gaming would be perfect for that type of person
4: and that's it for this week's episode of darts and letters our lead producer is jake hoburn our assistant producer this week was Jason Cohanum. Our managing producer is Mark Lonio, and research and show notes are by Dave Mosscrop. Our marketing assistant is Ian Souten. As always, our theme song and outro was composed by Mike Barber. The graphics are by Dakota Coop, and I'm your host and editor, Gordon Caddock. You can send us feedback by emailing the show. The address is darts at citedmedia.ca. This is a production of Cited Media and we are backed by academic grants that support mobilizing research and democratizing the concept of the public intellectual. This is also part of a wider project that looks at the politics of video games. It's housed at the University of British Columbia and the University of Waterloo with funding from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. Thanks for listening.